welcome to the Future of Supply Chain podcast, where we explore strategies and insights to supply chain operations and inventory planning. Join us as we talk to the brightest minds in the supply chain planning and operations space to bring you industry-leading knowledge. We'll uncover what's working in the retail space and explore solutions to common inventory challenges. And most importantly, we'll cover what the future of supply chain holds, a future that is in our very own hands. I'm your host, Divya Bade from Fuse Inventory, a female-founded inventory planning software powering the future of commerce. In this episode of our podcast, I thought it'd be great to highlight our very own co-founder and CEO, Rachel Leal. Rachel's background consists of managing supply chains for startups, launching her own brand prior to Fuse, and even pursuing education beyond computer science into law, something that benefits her in the long run for sure. I'm excited to chat with Rachel about her past, the lessons she's learned as a female founder, and her take on the future of supply chain. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Hi. I'm super excited. There's a lot I want to cover. Um, but before we dive into it, I want to talk about your backstory. Um, so you have a very interesting background from where you grew up to your education to your professional career. Can you tell us a little bit about your story leading up to Fuse? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I grew up in Hawaii, uh, went to Stanford for college, and actually majored in East Asian studies um, with a minor in computer science. Um, started my career as a software developer. Uh, and when I was doing that, I actually worked at a fashion app startup. So we were kind of like Instagram influencer tagging products before influencer was a word, but we were a little bit too early. And one thing that I learned from that startup was just, you know, this world of e-commerce was coming around and it was starting to get really big, all these new business models, all these new products. Um, and I just fell in love with that world. So I decided that for my next step, instead of being a software developer, I would join uh, an e-commerce brand. And I joined inventory and operations at KiwiCrate, where I did everything from forecasting all the way down to fulfillment and helped them improve and scale every part of their supply chain. Um, and it was there that I kind of first experienced the pain point that Fuse is solving. So just learning that a lot of inventory software is outdated. It wasn't modern, um, that everyone was using spreadsheets to forecast, spreadsheets to manage their inventory. Um, and, you know, I actually ended up taking those learnings with me and I started a baby brand. So um, it's a brand called Parasol. Um, we had the softest and thinnest, di- uh, thinnest diapers on the market. And I applied my learnings there. So I did you know, the product development supply chain there as well. Um, and just kind of found that every brand that we were talking to and partnering with, you know, they were experiencing a lot of the same pain points that I saw at KiwiCrate for a growing inventory organization where, um, again, like everything's done in Excel. Uh, and so I actually built a custom solution for Parasol. I was like, we're not going to be doing our inventory in Excel. We've got all these like custom patterns and combinations and mm-hmm. um, we wanted to be modern and make sure we can scale. Um, and then I realized that, you know, that could be used not only at Parasol, but many other brands. Um, and as I actually started talking to other planners, even planners from Macy's and The Gap and Nordstrom and Levi's, like they are also basically using Excel, um, mm. you know, although they might have something like SAP NetSuite, they're still using Excel to plan their inventory. And I thought, you know, 
I really feel strongly that this industry moves into more modern software. So just kind of looking back and connecting all the dots, um, it kind of ended up as where I am today, which is running a supply chain software company, Fuse. Um, so you, I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but you know, the, the biggest pain point that you were seeing as a planner um, and as a supply chain manager was, you know, the inventory challenges that are faced by brands. So what was, um, I know that was the huge impetus behind Fuse, but what did you want to be able to offer that wasn't already out there? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the space, there are like legacy solutions that take they might say they take six months, but they take up to a year or multiple years to get up and mm-hmm. running. And when you're a fast growth brand and you're growing like crazy and, you know, maybe you you were featured somewhere and you got found a sudden spike in sales and you're expanding your team or expanding your operations, um, you can't wait 12 months to get up, you know, online and running in a software. And so you just kind of throw more people at the problem. Um, but you know, it, it becomes a very, you know, high stress environment. Um, and I, I think the thing that really struck me was that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, you know, so inventory happens to be something that software would be really great at managing that software can optimize. Um, so that's really why I decided to work on fuse. I really felt strongly that, you know, there was a better way to do things and that companies and especially the supply chain managers at these companies didn't really have to suffer through doing everything manually or doing things in spreadsheets um, or, you know, waiting months and months for a legacy system that's only slightly better than spreadsheets to get implemented. Like there's modern software that can solve this, just no one's built it yet. Um, Yeah. Kind of like my motivation for starting Fuse. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I know over the years since you guys started or since we started back in 2016, 2017, mm-hmm. um, we've spoken to many brands over the years. And so um, what are some of the cha- common challenges that you've seen and what do you think has separated and continues to separate the brands that prevail in the space? You know, a lot of people ask me since I work in the space, like, what trends do you see in the industry? Like, what is retail trending towards? And you know, I, I mean, there are obviously macro trends, but what I feel like really defines and makes a company successful is not necessarily them following some sort of trend like personalization or better social media marketing influencer mm-hmm. campaigns. Like, obviously, those are somewhat important, but I think it's the culture of the company. So oftentimes I see brands... Um, you know, that are resistant to change. So maybe a brand that's done really well, it's grown um, and they don't want to, you know, change up the way they're doing things. And no matter, it, even if it's like bankruptcy is looming on the horizon, they're still reluctant to do, you know, change the way that they do things. Um, right. And then there's also organizations that are willing to adapt, whether they're young organizations or older organizations that have been around for a while, like they're just more open-minded to trying out new things trying to always improve rather than just go the path that they've been on. Those are the companies that I think will do really well, um, whether or not they're a young digitally native brand or a well-established brand that has just managed to stay relevant. So I think it really comes down to that company culture. Um, and I think that the company cultures that remain, you know, innovated and engaged with community, like those brands I see succeed. And also mm-hmm. I think brands that 
really focus on all aspects of their business, not just marketing and advertisement and throwing money at trying to grow your audience, but the brands that also you know, invest in their own infrastructure, making sure they can scale on the supply chain mm-hmm. side, on the HR side. So yeah, those are kind of what I see and, and what I kind of think is an indicator for success with brands. Yeah. So that's stuff. I think that's true. I know you you feel that sentiment um, when it comes to you know the brands that we're serving that have inventory, the retailers, et cetera. Um, but I think you you feel that sentiment too when it comes to even just business in general, um, just based on um, you know kind of the culture of fuse, and and mm-hmm. so I think that's definitely evident across industries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's definitely not something retail specific. It's something that's like company. Yeah. <laughs> so no, it's awesome. Industries, like it really comes down to the company culture, what kind of talent they can hire and recruit and retain really. Mm-hmm. Um, and how they think about problems, how they think about challenges and how they think about, you know, growth and long-term versus short-term trade-offs, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, going back over the years, either, you know, during Fuse or before Fuse, uh, during your professional career, what's a mistake that you've made or a lesson that you've learned? Uh, and if you can go back and fix it, how would you do so? Yeah, I mean, I've made a ton of mistakes. Um, I think everyone has. I think what is more important is really recognizing it and confronting mm-hmm. it and making sure that you've taken a lesson from it. Um, I mean, I think I've made all sorts of mistakes, but the most important lesson that I've learned is that, you know, when it comes to teams, when it comes to company success, it all comes down to who you end up hiring and retaining again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people often say like pay lip servicing, that's like the most important job of a CEO. Um, but you know, a lot of times when I see people doing the like speaker circuit and they're not focusing on growing their companies, they're absent from the office. They're not talking to their employees and figuring out like, you know, who's really a great culture fit and thinking Mm -hmm. about culture deeply. Like, I think that's like the biggest warning flag for a company. Um, And so that's kind of the lesson that I've learned um, the hard way. Like this is my fifth startup I've either been a part of or have founded. And one of the things I learned was that like, you have to be able to fire people quickly when they're not working out. You have to be able to hire the right people and really vet them during the hiring process. And that's something that's very difficult to do. Um, you know, I think that there are a billion startups out there trying to solve this like billion dollar question. Um, but that's really what ends up making or breaking a company. Um, you know, whether you're a brand, whether you're a supply chain software company, it's just so important to make sure you're, you're hiring um, and retaining the right people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to take uh, a moment just to talk a little bit about the current time. So as of this recording, we're in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Um, and so I want to ask what your advice is to supply chain managers or business owners uh, who today are navigating through the current pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing for supply chain managers is that they're very used to like putting out fires, Um, like no matter how well you plan, no matter how well you execute, there's always something weird that goes wrong with supply chain. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And like we had this like once when I was um, working as a supply chain manager, we had and it was no fault of ours, but the cargo ship we were shipping our goods on had an Asian gypsy moth invasion, which was mm-hmm. apparently like it's an invasive species. So they had to like fumigate the entire 
cargo boat and like millions of dollars of inventory and ours just you know it was just a few boxes that have or a few pallets that just got stranded on that boat um but it was like okay, you know, yeah. for our business that was a very important few pallets um and so you know you're you're used to things just coming out of left field you know you're like you walk into work and like what fire is going to happen today yep. it's <laughs> kind of a literal warehouse fire <laughs> um, and you know you learn that you know, you learn to adapt. And I think that the, the pandemic just kind of like amplified that it's like, well, now this fire is like a forest fire. Mm -hmm. It's not just your warehouse. It's like everyone's warehouses are on fire. Like how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to deal with not only, you know, spikes or declines in demand, but also supply chain disruptions, whether it's boats being stuck at Harbor planes being grounded, less air cargo space due to less flights, due to less travel. You know, there's all these kind of, you know, chain reactions that have happened due to the pandemic. And I think that the most important thing that people can do is really just stay calm and and not make decisions out of fear. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like if you don't buy any inventory, you won't sell any inventory by default. So, um, you know, sometimes I see brands, their reaction is to just stop all purchase orders. And mm-hmm. while that might be a good short-term fix, you know, when the, like, you don't know how the year is going to go. And if you have zero inventory, you will sell zero inventory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also on the flip side, like you can't just keep going as if this is, hasn't happened and placing a massive purchase orders when you don't know whether or not there will be demand. So I think it's about having a nimble supply chain. And I think what, leaders should be doing today is really refocusing and um, really kind of reflecting on their supply chains and making sure that their supply chains are nimble. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we recently wrote a bunch of content about building a resilient supply chain. And that's something I tell founders and, and other supply chain managers, like even before COVID happened, but it's all the more relevant where it's important to do things like build vendor redundancy you know, I remember, I believe it was Function of Beauty, they had a huge stock out period during holiday season one year because there was a hurricane and it blocked the like one major raw material that goes in all of their shampoos. Wow. <laughs> you know, things like that where it's like it may not be a global pandemic, but there will always be natural disasters that happen in a physical world. Um, so you have to be prepared for that and you can't put all of your eggs in one basket. Vendors, whether it's the way you ship goods, um, you know, you have to be able to be flexible. And one thing that I really encourage people to do is to not just source internationally, but to look domestically. There's a lot of great manufacturing um, close by um, and to make sure that you have, maybe you split some of your inventory buys. It might be a little bit more costly on a per unit perspective. There's always pressure to get your unit cost down, your landed unit cost down. But when you think about like the dangers of overbuying and underbuying and not being able to react quickly um, to market changes, I think that you'll find that that risk outweighs the you know margin savings that you get. Um, and so that's something I really encourage brands to do um, and supply chain leaders to really think about, um, you know, how can we build a more resilient supply chain? Maybe we can partner with other brands to order minimums. Maybe we can, you know, really think of our suppliers as partners and help them get through it, help ourselves get through it by thinking of how we can be more nimble together, um, kind of that long-term partnership. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think going back to, you know, your sentiment about, um, you know, there's a lot of great suppliers locally, there definitely is something to be said about the benefit of being able to produce with uh, within a shorter amount of time to be able to react quickly. Um, you know, a product cost might be you know, a few cents, a few dollars higher, um, but the, the advantages that you're able to tap into can sometimes pay 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 for that so yeah um, and i think it goes like beyond demand fluctuations like obviously a spike in demand or a sudden drop in demand you want to be able to react to that quickly i think those to like product development you know when you when you do product development with an overseas manufacturer it can take weeks and weeks every single change or feedback to the product takes like a few days to get through right right um, always miscommunications whereas if you source with someone locally um, you can actually really shorten that product development timeline, which can save huge costs there and also allow you to produce like new products faster and to also ensure the quality of those products as well. Mm. And, you know, visit the factories, make sure that the quality is there, make sure that mm. your partners are engaged with you long-term. It's easier to visit them face-to-face. It's easier to really build that relationship. So I think there are so many advantages to having, um, you know, suppliers that are nearby that you can really rely on and, and think of as a community um, when times get hard. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So there's a lot of talk uh, right now on a new normal, um, and if there <laughs> isn't even is going to be a new normal. Um, so what's your take on what the future of supply chain holds? So I know you mentioned, um, you know, the concept of reshoring, um, but I guess you know, what do you think the new normal will be, and do you think there is going to be uh, a normal? I mean, I think that there will be a new normal. I actually believe that it's just kind of accelerating trends that we've already been seeing in global Mm -hmm. supply chains. So, um, you know, even before the pandemic hit, there was a trade war with China. We saw a lot of apparel leave China going to Vietnam and other Southeast Asian countries as well as Bangladesh. Um, You know, we've seen that, you know, the manufacturing hotspots around the world have been changing Um, there's kind of been a a pool to manufacture technology closer to home to retain control over the technology and the IP. There's Mm -hmm. been, you know, just rising labor costs in certain countries um, that make other countries and other regions more viable. Also been a rising concern over the environmental costs of shipping raw materials, you know, coast to coast globe, across the globe, um, and younger generations are increasingly um, conscious of the environmental cost that um, our consumption of physical goods has. So I think that it's not necessarily caused by the pandemic, but um, definitely accelerated by the pandemic. It's made it a lot more urgent for people to do these long-term projects that kept getting pushed off, like vendor redundancy, things like, you know, shortening their lead times. So um, I think that new normal is really, when I see kind of the future of supply chain, I really do see like shorter lead times. Um, I really do think that raw materials and manufacturing and that distance between them will be shortened as a result of the need for shorter lead times. I do think that people will be buying in smaller batches, but building up long-term relationships with manufacturers. Um, You think that manufacturers will also be a little bit more lenient on minimum order quantities so long as there are promises for the future. 
Um, and that's actually something that we've already started seeing even before the pandemic. And I think we've seen that accelerate where a lot of our customers have been starting to negotiate with their vendors to say, like, you know, we promise we will order a certain amount, you know, over the year, um, long term, but we're just going to place POs for smaller batches. Um, and so we actually built that concept of like draft POs into our product because right. it, it's starting to become very popular. And that's something that manufacturers were kind of like non-negotiable in the past. I was like, no, the minimum order quantity is like 50,000, 100,000. Now, now they're more flexible to say, like, okay, it's 100,000, but you can place it in quantities of like 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's, you know, I think that's actually good. Um, it produces a lot less waste and it, it helps brands a lot. Yeah. Hopefully it helps manufacturers as well as brands become, you know, more loyal customers and, and more willing to kind of experiment and gain user base by experimenting with product. I think that, you know, can only help manufacturers because their their business will boom as well. And maybe they can make greater margins by being more flexible and sharing yeah. like that, you know, yeah, that absolutely. Sharing economy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so our listeners may or may not know that Fuse is actually a female founded SaaS company, which is somewhat rare. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, what is the best piece of either business advice you ever received or the advice that you might have for other female founders? Yeah, I mean, you know, I really believe in not making decisions out of fear. Um, and whether it's female or male founders or, non-binary gender founders or whatever you identify as, um, you know, I think that it's important to make decisions out of a place of logic, out of data, out of proper research. Um, and, you know, that's something that our, one of our favorite investors, Charles Hudson from Precursor, he always reemphasizes, especially during the pandemic, it's like, you know, make sure your businesses are grounded in looking towards the future um, in optimism and not fear, like mm -hmm. healthy, you know, like a lot of investors say, like they say, oh, we love founders who are paranoid and there's like a healthy amount of paranoia to have. But mm -hmm. I think that paranoia should only drive you to work harder, but not influence your decision making. Um, yeah. Because if you're always, you know, you should always plan for the worst case scenario, but not assume the worst case scenario. I think yep. there's a distinction there. Um, yeah. So really the best piece of business advice that I've ever received and life advice in general. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. Another like one specific to female founders um, that also came from Charles was, you know, be your most aggressive, be 10% more than that and mm. still be polite. I, <laughs> I'll say that one more time. Um, so be aggressive and then be 10% more than that, but still be polite. And yeah. I thought that was really great a great way of thinking about it. Like I'm always trying to, you know, hold my ground, be assertive, but not be rude. And I think like just being polite, always being polite kind of protects you against that people, you know, interpreting you as an angry person or unreasonable, but you hold your ground. You are asking for what you deserve or what you want or what you need negotiation. Um, so I think that was super great business advice, especially for female founders. Awesome. So be confident, don't react out of fear and, and be 10% more aggressive than your most aggressive, but still polite. <laughs> I love that. I love that quote. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs>
Um, so I want to just take a couple of minutes just to talk a little bit more about you and get to know you a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. I know you're a, a, a avid reader, um, so I'm <laughs> curious what book you'd recommend uh, to our audience and why. Um, you know, there are a lot of great books out there. Um, you know, I think there's all the classic books that everyone hears about, books like Pitch Anything and mm-hmm. Hard Thing About Hard Things and all of those. Um, you know, we actually did an accelerator called Alchemist Accelerator, and they gave us all of those books. And they also gave us a book called The Alchemist by Apollo Coelho. Mm-hmm. And that was a really great book. It's really an allegory about the founder's journey. Um, but I personally, I love fiction. Um, if you look at my bookshelf, it's like a bunch of fiction books, not necessarily business books. Um, so I really, you know, would recommend, I'm just going to look at my bookshelf right now and recommend a book from there. The first thing that pops out. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, actually the first thing that popped out was all you need to know about the music business, but that's not a fiction book. It's a great book about the music business though. Um, ah, here, Doris Lessing to room 19. I think that's a fascinating novel. Um, it's, it's actually a novel I found from a Korean drama, um, about life in your thirties. So also Mm. relevant. (laughs) Um, so it's a great drama. It's called Because This Is Our First Life. It follows mm-hmm. people in tech startup, so it's very fun. Um, but Two Room 19 is a great novel about, you know, just the need for your own personality and your own personal space, mm-hmm. but in the context of what it means as a, a woman. So, like, as a wife, as a mother, as mm-hmm. a woman, like, how do you retain your identity while still you know, dealing with all of the pressures that society has for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really recommend that book to everyone. Awesome. And the like a lovely too. book. <laughs> <laughs> um, you actually touched on something I was going to ask when you mentioned your music book. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to go ahead and skip the next question I had just because I want to touch on that. So um knowing you over you know the past few years I've kind of learned about all these different um hobbies and interests that you have <laughs> uh, and I want to I, w- I was going to ask you you know tell me a fun fact but I want to jump in here before you answer because you know we talked about this before as a difficult question to answer um to mm-hmm. which I was shocked because um, you know, I feel like, you know, you have many, many interests in music and, and karate and I'm learning something new every week. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm fascinated by all of it. And so but I want to hear from you. Like, what is something that most people don't actually know about you? Um, uh, well, I think our, our past conversation around this was around, you know, I think by asking that question, you're also thinking about like, what do people stereotype you? And mm-hmm. what is surprising against that stereotype? I mean, I think most people would assume that I play piano and violin, which is true. I play piano and violin <laughs> <laughs> like an Asian girl does. Um, but, um, you know, I also have many other interests. Um, like you talked about martial arts. I love martial arts. I love dancing. I actually did Lindy Hop for many, many years and still do. Um, so I love swing dancing, Lindy Hop, um, jazz music. Um, so that's probably the most like unexpected thing that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. That I, when I learned that, I was equally as surprised. Um, 
but overall very impressed. I need to, I need to up my, uh, my hobby. I'm pretty sure that's, so I'm pretty sure that's still like one of the, uh, first search results. If you Google my name is like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to do that after, after maybe, this recording. Maybe cut that part out. <laughs> no, I think we'll keep it. <laughs> Um, so my own fun fact, um, that I want to actually share is that Rachel actually doesn't like talking about herself. And this is something that I learned last year when we were having a very casual and candid conversation about you. And I actually paused, I don't know if you remember this, to comment that I wish I was recording it because it was just so insightful. Um, you know, you touched on your background and all that. So that's why I really wanted to capture this conversation today and actually record it um, to be able to share with our audience. So, um, Rachel, I want to thank you for taking the time today to talk about yourself. I've certainly enjoyed learning about you and learning from you, and I'm sure our listeners will too. So thank you. Thanks, Divya. Um, just for you, I'll talk about myself. I like to stay in the background, though. <laughs> I know, but there's so much to share, and so I'm so I'm so happy that you know you took the chance today to to share it. And, and um, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Fuse Inventory, an inventory planning solution for the digital age. Fuse centralizes inventory sales and procurement data to generate a predictive forecast and inventory replenishment plan to help brands scale their supply chain. If you'd like to learn more, please visit FuseInventory.com or follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Plan less and do more with Fuse Inventory.